37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, 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 what's up, everybody? Welcome back to episode 215 of Pixelated Paranormal. And with me, as always, is Preston. What's up, all you cool ghosts and goblins? <laughs> Spooky cats. Season, and... two of that, season two of that shit's coming out. Oh, yeah, dude, I'm excited. Yeah, and apparently uh, Tiger King's also running, like, some kind of contest... Kind of like Bachelorette style, where he's looking for a new lover to be with whenever he gets out. His, uh, his husband divorced him? I mean, one of them's dead, right? Yeah, I mean, one of them died, and then, like, two months later, he married some Joe off the streets. And, yeah. uh, you know, that that was the um, end of season one. Like, oh, don't worry, <laughs> Joe, I love you. I'll be here for you, baby, when you get out. So it's like, dude, even Joe Exotic can find love, and now you're telling me he doesn't have love, so... Ah, man. Well, apparently season two is getting ready to hit Netflix, and he is also running some kind of contest for love. I mean, he's got a mullet and a Prince Albert. What's there not to love? And, you know, he'll buy you all the meth and cocaine and guns you want, (laughs) so... What a trailer park fairy tale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not here to talk about Joe Exotic. We're here to do our 20th cryptid encounter, Preston. Holy shit. Yeah. And Steve couldn't be here with us on this episode because he is getting over the funk. Uh, luckily, it's not COVID, but man, COVID's one thing. And then on top of that, there's like 15 other viral infections going around. It's just fall time Oof. in Kansas, I guess. Yeah. I had it like well, three weeks ago, man. I, I mowed and got all the, you know, dust storm of grass up my nostrils. And yeah. uh, I suffered an upper respiratory infection. Like, I had to go get the roids, uh, some pearlies, mm-hmm. and a Z-Pack. So. Gee, Buzz. Yeah, Steve's dealing with that crap. And uh, my wife's got it too, man. Shayla has it. And uh, we were hoping it wasn't COVID. She got tested and it came back negative, thank goodness. But. Yeah, she's been coughing up a lung and and everything else, so. Well, let's uh, skip the pleasantries, jump into the news, and then we'll just get right into our cryptid encounter. The journey back to Earth from space is never easy, Preston, but the astronauts aboard the SpaceX capsule coming home on Monday will have an extra challenge to deal with because they don't have any working toilets. That's right, apparently a broken toilet on SpaceX means astronauts will return to Earth having to wear diapers. The four members on SpaceX crew Dragon Endeavor will be wearing diapers as they splash down in order to prevent anything else from splashing down too. Their crew for this mission, known as Crew 2, has been at the International Space Station since April and have spent nearly 200 days in space. They said it's been a very, very intense mission, and a lot of things have happened. Over the mission, they conducted a series of spacewalks, installing solar panels to upgrade the station's power grid. They grew the first ever green chili peppers in space to make tacos, 
and they also hosted a private Russian film crew. The SpaceX capsule is currently scheduled to unlock from the International Space Station on Monday afternoon and return Monday evening, although all is dependent on the weather. See, that joke there could have been made about Depends, and they skipped right over it. I mm-hmm. am not impressed anymore, NPR.org. But all in all, the four crew members could spend up to 20 hours in the capsule from the time it hatches until the time it's opened again on Earth. In this weekend's press conference, NASA astronaut Megan MacArthur confirmed the toilets on board Dragon Endeavor are officially broken. And she says, of course, that's suboptimal, but we're prepared to manage. Space flight is full of lots of challenges in this one. It's just one more that we'll encounter and have to take care of during our mission. Ooh. That sounds pretty crappy. Well, Presto, that's all I've got for the news. What say you? Well, so you asked me if I could come up with a news story for tonight's episode. So, you know, you felt like I contributed something and I didn't want to let you down. (laughs) That's what I'm here for, baby. So I came across this article from Mysterious Universe. And uh, let's talk about all the places that, uh, you know, you may or may not want to live. So if I say, Sean, would you mind living in California? You know, um, there's not much going on. Um, some yeah. earthquakes. So you'd be like, cool, dude. I'd move to California. Um, you know, tonight's story. Let me click over on the notes real quick. <laughs> Let's see here. So, you know what? Ohio. You might think to yourself... Ohio might be a great place to dwell, and then, you know, you got your little cryptid encounter, so maybe, maybe not. You know, uh, you uh, Whitey from Arkansas, the river monsters, they might be like, fuck Arkansas, but (laughs) I will tell you, Sean, I don't know if you're afraid of spiders or not. I actually have passive arachnophobia. Well, Sean, say goodbye to your dream of living in the state of Georgia. Because Uh giant spiders have invaded the state and look to go nationwide and even scare the shit out of other spiders. That's (laughs) right. The giant Joro spider, Trichnophilia clavate, an invasive species Mm. from East Asia that showed up in 2014, has taken over the state. So fuck you, Georgia. Covering it with its massive, intricate webs. And don't rest too easy. Tennessee, South Carolina, Florida, and Alabama. So I know Florida's got them meth gators. But now you're going to have to worry about the giant Zoro spiders. That's right. And they might not be the largest spider in North America because we do have the tarantula. But Mm -hmm. uh, they may be scaring other spiders. Last year, there were dozens of spiders that began uh, to be something of a nuisance when I was doing my yard work. This year, I have several hundred, and they actually make the place look spooky with all the messy webs, like a scene out of Arachnophobia, one uh, interviewer said. The University of Georgia entomologist Will Hudson explains in a statement that the Juro spiders are venomous uh, but pose a danger only to insects caught in their webs not humans or pet 
However, the rapid spread throughout the state of Georgia has him concerned, and he recommends killing any females one comes across. Females are larger and more colorful than the small brown males. Hudson himself has killed more than 300 females on his property this year. He instructs to avoid pesticides and instead use the old-fashioned method of don't put it out with your boots, Ted. That's right. (laughs) Stomp on those motherfuckers. He warns that jumping spiders have a superb vision and are excellent predators, but they can equally fall prey to other other jumping spiders. In a hierarchical decision-making setup, we tested whether the common zebra jumping uh, spider uh, can visually recognize stationary predators. So because these spiders are taking over, um, other smaller spider species are now going to, through you know evolution, learn the ability to jump to avoid these bastards. Uh, so you know what? Welcome to more jumping spiders across the United States. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's that's it. Um, so fuck you, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. So don't yeah, that sounds don't, terrifying. Don't travel to Georgia anytime soon because not only are you going to have to be, you know, dealing with these giant fucking fruit spiders, but all the other spiders in the area are going to like learn how to jump and they're going to be jumping all over the place, jumping on you, jumping on your luggage, jumping in your hair, jumping on your car. Mm-mm. Nope. Nope. I'll eat my peaches from Dylan's. Thank you very much. Yeah. Fuck that noise. Uh, have you heard the noise. stories of people um, getting banana spiders here in America? Yeah. Oh, fuck that. I was talking to a guy that actually found one at a Dillon's in El Dorado once. Uh, he was working produce, unpacking bananas, and he came across the box, opened it up, pulled the plastic back, and there was the most ugly alien-looking spider he'd ever seen. He said he screamed and destroyed it with extreme prejudice. <laughs> <laughs> and almost an entire box of bananas. I mean, living out in the country, I deal with uh, field spiders or mouse spiders. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, their primary mm-hmm. diets are all the fucking uh, field mice that uh, live in the back half of my property. So, you know, yep. you're walking outside mowing the grass, and next thing you know, this fucking giant tarantula-looking thing crawls out of a hole in the ground. It's like, are you that tasty treat I was looking for? And Hello? I scream like a girl and whack it with shit. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> not me. Not this me. is not the droid you're looking for. Nope. <laughs> yeah, we live next to a field here in town. And uh, we get quite a few giant wolf spiders that I'll catch in my garage. Mm. If I can, normally I'll catch them and let them go back outside. But there's been a few black widows I've caught around the property that uh, I may or may not have smashed those. Who knows? The air is cool and crisp as you drive across the gravel of the road that leads to the lookout point. You've got your best gal sitting next to you, the tunes are cranked up, and you're both giddy with anticipation of what the night might bring. The car pulls to a halt and you both look out onto the sparkling city below, inching ever closer to each other. And just as you make your move, The tall grass and overgrown brush begin to rustle. What was that? 
You shake it off, though, and stay the course and start to lock lips with your lady friend again when the rustling starts again. But this time you see something watching you from between the blades of thick grass and the bramble. You flash on your headlights, and in front of you stands a bizarre sight. Shielding its eyes from the light of your high beams stands a short, emaciated creature with a large, bulging head and glowing red-orange eyes, its head almost too big for its body, and it's covered in bulging veins, throbbing and quivering. But the peeping voyeur isn't alone. Slowly, one by one, a small group of these monsters creep out of the tall grass, lumbering their way to your car, their eyes glowing in the moonlight, and their teeth gnashing for their next meal. Welcome to Cryptid Encounters, Part 20, The Melonheads. Hailing from the tri-state area of Ohio, Michigan, and Connecticut, it's the Melonheads. Small, diminutive creatures who are generally described as being humanoids with translucent, bulbous heads, beady, glowing eyes, and thin, gangly bodies, who on occasion will hide in thick brush or ditches to jump out and attack unsuspecting victims. These bizarre creatures survive by consuming a steady diet of rodents, squirrels, stray cats and dogs, and on occasion, human flesh. The earliest stories about these deformed country people who keep to themselves go back at least a century to Europe where a small family of melonheads supposedly once lived in Bavaria, Germany in the mid-19th century. An inbred family of melonheads known as the Weebleheads were said to live outside of Risbury, England around the 1900s as well. But oddly enough, just like Bigfoot and Sasquatch, the melonheads differ from state to state. So let's kick things off in Michigan. The Melonheads of Michigan are said to reside around the southern forested areas of Ottawa County. Now, according to local legend, they were originally children suffering from hydrocephalus. Cephalocephalus. Hydrocephalus. Now, what that $10 word means is a condition in which accumulation of cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF, occurs within the brain. This typically causes increased pressure inside the skull. Older people may have headaches, double vision, poor balance, urinary incontinence, and personality changes, and also mental impairment. In babies, it may be seen as a rapid increase in the size of their head, aka water on the brain. Other symptoms include sleepiness, seizures, and a downward pointing of the eyes. Well, anyway, they were said to be children suffering from hydrocephalus who lived in the Junction Insane Asylum, a hospital in Sagatuck, which specialized in the treatment of hydrocephalic or waterhead syndrome and other malformations in children. Eventually, the hospital was forced to close, however, and the children had nowhere to go. 
So they were released into a local doctor's care who claimed that he had a private facility called Felt Manor where he could continue the treatment for the children who suffered from hydrocephalus. Now, unfortunately, as many of these stories do, this one takes a turn. The doctor was a nefarious man who, instead of treating the children as promised, would go on to perform several unspeakable experiments on the children, including administering even more fluid into their heads and other unnecessary surgeries, further changing their appearance. Well, after several years of enduring physical and emotional abuse, the otherwise docile children were slowly driven mad and became feral. And late one night, they devised a plan to kill the ill-fated doctor and escape the cursed manor. So just like that, they banded together and the feral children overthrew and murdered the doctor. And with nowhere to hide the body, they cut it up into small pieces, which they hid around the mansion. Then they let themselves out of the prison-like mansion and escaped into the forest surrounding the manor, where they retreated into the system of caverns from a nearby zoo that was abandoned previously. And it's said that to this day, if you're brave enough to venture into the ruined Felt Manor building, you can see the ghosts of the children that the doctor murdered, as well as the ill-fated doctor's ghost himself. But if ghosts aren't your thing, then that's just fine, because the actual melon heads themselves still stalk the nearby forests, waiting for unsuspecting victims to stumble into their territory. Ugh, that story went from bad to fucked. Now, fairly similar to the melon head legend of Michigan, the stories of Ohio's bulbous-headed creatures are pretty similar and primarily associated with the Cleveland suburb of Kirtland. Now, according to local lore, the melon heads were originally orphans under the watch of a mysterious figure known as Dr. Crow. Now, Dr. Crow is said to have performed unusual experiments on the children who developed large hairless heads and malformed bodies. A very strange and mysterious man, Dr. Crow lived in a secluded house on Windsor Road in Kirkland, Ohio, an eastern suburb of Cleveland. He was married to his beautiful wife, but sadly the couple were only ever able to have one child, a son, who unfortunately suffered from hydrocephalus. The mentally strange Dr. Crow slowly grew obsessed with finding a personal cure for his son's disease and malformity, and soon took in a group of small orphan children under the guise of providing a foster home for the discarded children. And again in a dark twist, in a quest for a cure, Dr. Crow began to perform experiments on the children. Horrific, painful experiments, including injecting fluid into their heads to see how far they would swell. These repeated treatments caused malformations that gave the children their terrifying new appearance. The melon heads, as they were then called, were docile, helpless victims of a madman's strange fascination. Now, years would go on to pass, and Dr. Crow's insanity only grew, and the children those who were lucky enough to survive the experiments slowly went mad. In an unexpected act of revolt, 
The Melonheads attack Dr. Crow, taking vengeance in the most violent manner. Let me guess, they chopped them up in little pieces. <laughs> maybe so, maybe so. The doctor died at the hands of his children, who were now free from the collective captivity. The Melonheads set fire to the doctor's house and laboratory, thus destroying any and all records of the non-sanctioned experiments and deplorable abuse that he delved out to the orphans. They were finally free, but where would they go? The only home they ever knew was gone, as was the only adult they had ever dealt with, as Dr. Crow's wife had since passed away. So the Melonheads took to the woods, hiding altogether. They were scared and angry, seeking shelter and food wherever they could find it. They had no ability or desire to communicate with the outside world, and once again, they found themselves more alone than ever. So as time would go on, it's said that Melonheads would then abduct small children who would wander into the woods, and they'd eat them. Because of their paranoia of society, the Melonheads kill and cannibalize anybody who sees them. And to keep the Melonhead cult going, they've kept to inbreeding, making the offspring more and more raving and paranoid as generation advances to generation. Legend still holds today the Melonheads may be seen still wandering around Windsor Road in Kirkland and Chardon Township and also near the infamous Cry Baby Bridge. Now in Connecticut, the Melonhead story is a little different. See, back in the 1960s, there was a hospital known as Fairfield Hill, also known as Garner Correctional Institute, which specialized in inmates with mental health problems. Well, as the legend goes on, late one evening... In the fall of 1960, the Fairfield County burned down in a mysterious fire, resulting in the death of almost all the staff and most of the patients, except for an unaccounted 10 to 20 inmates who supposedly survived the fire and managed to escape into the woods. As a result of fending for themselves out in the woods with no real source of food, the escaped patients resorted to cannibalism in order to survive the harsh winters of the region. Those who were lucky enough to survive the harsh existence, just as the royal families of Europe did, the escaped patients would begin to interbreed with each other and eventually kept things in the family long enough, so to speak, to cause the inbred offspring to suffer from horrible physical deformations, including severe cases of hydrocephalus. And now, through years... In years of more inbreeding, a swarm of big-headed monsters have swarmed the nearby forests. And so this is kind of like the movies like Hills Have Eyes and Wrong Turn and that creepy-ass band episode of the X-Files called Home. Presto, did you ever see that episode? <laughs> yeah. I was about yeah. to bring it up earlier when you were talking about you know all the inbreeding. Like, oh, yeah. that's like that, that episode in the X-Files where they came across the peacocks, and then I'm scrolling down your notes, and I'm like, oh, shit. Sean's <laughs> going to talk about that. Look yes. That. Um, we hope to not get too spoilery if you have not watched the uh, X-Files yet. I believe you could still catch it whenever it's shown on, like, um, Netflix and Hulu and stuff like that. 
There was one infamous episode called Home. It was one of your standalone Monster of the Week episodes that had Mulder and Scully investigating the discovery of this deformed baby's body near the home of this family called the Peacocks in a small town in Pennsylvania. Well, during the course of the investigation, Mulder and Scully end up questioning the Peacock brothers who live in an old shambling house without any electricity or running water that apparently missed out on the 20th century altogether. So they go up and investigate the house, and Mulder and Scully discover the deformed baby had been buried alive and that its deformities may have been the product of inbreeding. So they're stumped because their lead basically kind of ends with the peacocks, but they're just a bunch of brothers, so how could they actually breed with each other? So they arrive at the conclusion that the peacocks must have kidnapped and raped a woman. After a local sheriff issues a warrant for the peacocks' arrests, the brothers run, and ultimately the peacocks escape and bludgeon the sheriff and his wife to death with baseball bats. The next day, they're arrested, and Mulder and Scully investigate the house to find Mrs. Peacock, the mother of the two brothers, has been laying under a bed. She's violently deformed, a quadruple amputee, who, as it turns out, has been breeding with her sons for decades. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, Ugh, gives you the willies. The heebie-jeebies. All <laughs> right. Another story from a witness named Paul I recounts what he heard as a teenager in the 1960s. According to Paul, some teenagers saw a melon head along the sides of a road uh, walk into the woods, and they followed him into a farmhouse deep there. Two adults and several children with malformed heads sat on the porch. One said that he was a nuclear scientist in World War II and that the radiation exposure he suffered caused uh, deformities in his children. When Paul and some of his friends went looking for the farmhouse, they were intercepted by several police officers who tried so hard to convince them that the story was fiction that they became even more convinced of the existence of melon heads. Mm-hmm. That is very similar, I believe, to the twist in the remake of The Hills Have Eyes, where you discover that they were the result of several radiation and atomic bomb blasts that caused the whole family to look like a bunch of, um, well, big-headed freaks. Mm-hmm. And speaking of The Hills Have Eyes, I was lucky enough to meet the amazingly kind Michael Berryman about through not quite three years ago at a comic book convention. He played the original Pluto in The Original Hills Have Eyes. No. Well, presto, let's just not stop there, because even though the Melonhead story all in all is pretty short... You know, I jumped online trying to find any kind of modern-day account. Sadly enough, it's full of a bunch of, you know, creepypasta and Reddit fodder. So I wasn't able to find too many modern accounts other than the ones we just talked about. But that's not to say melonheads are the only creepy-crawly things running around Connecticut. There's also another creature, another cryptid, called Frog People that were described as possessing large, lemon-shaped heads with eyeballs on either side, thin, crusty lips, and wide mouths. With sunken noses and slits for nostrils, 
are said to have patchy hair that sits upon the top of their abnormally large heads, and their bodies are thin and gangly, similar to the melon heads. The uh, summer before my uh, junior year of high school, a friend's mother was running a version of Meals on Wheels at a local church. I volunteered to help. Uh, two friends and I would go around Danbury door-to-door to give out lunches to the unfortunates. I, in one of my house were the, the frog people. They share a family name, and uh, I can't remember. They wouldn't come to the door. We were told to knock on the door and then leave the food there. But being mischievous kids, we would hide and wait. I never got awesome views, but the door would crack open and a hand would come out, and they would snatch the food. A year later, I was at my local grocery store around 11 p.m. when the same two friends, well, we were walking down the canned good aisle, and there's the frog person. He has uh, penny loafers and a short sleeve dress shirt tucked into khaki pants, and uh, he was going through the soups. We gasped. We were in shock. And then he turned and saw us, and, ah, uh, I tell you what, it was not as horrific as described. Yeah, his head was lemon-shaped, and he had a bad, lazy eye. He, you know, his face was stored to stretch, and his eyes and nose looked far apart, and, he, you know, he had some sores on his very thin lips, and, well, he really didn't have a froggy appearance, but, uh, he, you know, he had a normal head of hair, and I'd go so far as to say that, uh, even sort of nice, parted to the side, you know, <laughs> like he takes care of himself. But he had a bobblehead of sort of appearance and was very gangly. Maybe he was a leper. I don't know. Then a a girl came around the corner, blonde hair, pretty well groomed. And that added to the creepiness of it. If you saw them from behind, you'd think they kind of look like the Joneses. But then, you know, if you turn one around, it's it's a monster. I know it sounds mean, but I guess they kind of did look like two frogs. And then they darted away quickly and made the way out of the aisle. Now there is one other strange creature known as the New England Faceless People who tend to come up every time you Google the melon heads. The New England Faceless People are a family of strange mutant humanoids that are rumored to live in a ramshackle farmhouse in a rural Monroe, Connecticut. The Faceless People are often described by the few people who have glimpsed at them as having pale skin and stretched membranes covering where their eyes should be, colorless lips, bumps for noses, and holes in their heads where their ears should be. They're rumored to live alongside an old man who serves as their caretaker, who's often seen working in the yard and chasing away the cars of nosy rubberneckers. Now also, the melon heads are very similar to the tales of little people who are deeply rooted in the Native American folklore, like the Menegishi of Cree folklore and the Mimigwisi of the Ojibwa. Both are similarly described as semi-humanoid, being sextactylous humans with very thin and lanky arms and legs, and big heads without noses. According to one Cree mythology, there are two humanoid races, one being familiar human species and the other being the little people, i.e. the Menegishi. 
These people are said to live between the rocks and the rapids. One of their biggest delights, similar to the kappa of Japanese yokai, <laughs> is a completely non-heroic form of trickster behavior where they crawl out from among the rocks and capsize canoes of people passing by through the rapids, spinning them to their deaths. Now, the Mimaguisi are little people without defin definitive forms which are terrified of adult humans. However, it seems that they have a soft spot for children and will oftentimes approach them in the guise of another child or any other young person when they notice children are upset or injured or if they're scared or lonely. They show up to either protect them or keep them company until help arrives, but as soon as an adult comes and sees one, the Mimaguisi will turn around, cower on the ground, and scream and begin to cry hysterically, all before vanishing in the blink of an eye. They were also known as protectors of copper miners, and were also prayed to as almost patron saints of lost children. This is more specific and different from the Mimaguisi, who simply are described as short, hairy men. Well, presto... I'm going to finish things off with one last story. Late on me. Late one night, back in the 1980s, a group of girls from Notre Dame High School in Fairfield decided to have a drive around after a Friday night football game. They piled into a blue Granada and ended up on Valet Street in Trumbull, where they thought they'd have the bright idea to go in search of the fabled Melonheads. Well, the girls parked the Granada, leaving the headlights on, and ventured into the woods. After they walked a couple hundred feet, they heard the car door slam, and then one girl realized she left the keys in the ignition. To their horror, they heard the engine start up, and the car began to head towards them. They could see the figures inside. They were small, the size of children. But their heads, their heads were huge and bulbous, and they were wearing strange clothes, more like rags, and their eyes glowed orange as they passed by. The girls never did retrieve the Granada, and some say to this day, the melon heads still drive up and down the county road in that old blue Granada looking for their next meal. Beep, beep, motherfucker. <laughs> there you go that is the tale of the melon heads wow yeah now this episode was going to be a little longer because i was going to sandwich the dover demon into it but presto you reminded me back on episode 69 steven actually told us all about the old dover demon and we don't want to be redundant yeah, I did all the detective work for you on that one. <laughs> yes, you did. You're keeping mm -hmm. me honest, and that's what I appreciate about you. Man, that was a cryptid encounter number four. Holy crap. From October 10th of 2018. Whoa, buddy. Yeah, sometimes I forget we've been doing this thing for five years. And then in closing, speaking of the Melonheads, we just want to give a huge shout-out to Chelsea and Carlos because they had requested we jumped on this being from Michigan. Cool. All right. Well, presto, let's uh, hit it and quit it, shall we? Let's do it. Cool. Now, um, this episode will come out Wednesday the 10th, I believe. 
This Saturday on the 13th, we will be doing our fourth annual Pixelated for a Purpose. We're teaming up with our buddy Corey and his video cast, Pixelated Plays, and we'll be raising money for the Children's Miracle Network. Now, I've changed the uh, web address on our Instagram to the actual donation page. If you'd like to make a donation to our page, we would greatly appreciate it. You're still awesome. If you can't, that's okay. But spread the word. We'll have plenty of stuff on the Facebook as to where you can go watch the games. And we'll be doing a 24-hour video game marathon of us playing a bunch of couch co-op, shoot-em-ups, and everything else. So please come join us, watch us, check in. I'll be uh, updating the Instagram throughout the day. And yeah, it's going to be a pretty great cause. We're hoping if we can may, uh, maybe raise about a grand. Last time we raised almost 2800 So if we can hit $1,000, we are doing pretty good for a post-pandemic world. But yeah, stop by, say hi. We sure would appreciate it. If you're on Instagram, follow us at PXLParanormal. If you're on Facebook, check... <laughs> If you're on Facebook, check us out at the Pixelated Paranormal Podcast. Presto, what do you got for us? Well, folks, lemonhead, melonhead, applehead, fathead, skinnyhead, we don't give a <laughs> shit what type of head you got, but if you got a beard to go on that head, you're going to need to go over to BigDobsBeardBomb.com and use promo code PXLPARA for 20% off your order. And uh, regardless of what the rest of your face looks like, your beard is going to look fucking phenomenal <laughs> and it's going to smell great. And uh, get 20% off scents like Dundee Cedar Bay Rum, Fresh, Sweet Tobacco, Citrus, Mint, and Classic. Hell yeah. And if you're in the Wichita area, please stop by and say hi to our dear friend Leslie and the rest of the gang over at CD Trade Post at Pawnee and Seneca. And that about does it for this episode of Pixelated Paranormal on behalf of Big Steven, who I swear will be back one day soon. I'd like to say cheers to the weird shit in the world and to those of us that love to talk about it. And stay spooky and stay on the Paranormal Highway. The cast at Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. Email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal your guide to the unusual and the strange.